Today, I'm speaking with Mona Sobani, PhD. She is a cognitive neuroscientist, author, and entrepreneur. A former research scientist at the University of Southern California, she holds a doctorate in neuroscience from the University of Southern California and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Vanderbilt University with the MacArthur Foundation Law and Neuroscience Project. She is author of the OMI 22 Best Spiritual Book, Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, A Neuroscientist's Discovery of the Ineffable Mysteries of the Universe by Park City Press in Cosmos Coffee and Science Substack. She writes about science and spirituality, the psychedelic renaissance, altered states of consciousness, and the transpersonal. She is co-founder of Exploring Consciousness, a community of curious scientists who are seeking to understand consciousness, spirituality, and the nature of our reality. She also served as a scholar for the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Law, Policy, and Ethics. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Vox, and other media outlets. And it is very exciting to speak with a neuroscientist who is so open to researching survival of consciousness. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. This will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already and they were really special, fascinating, emotional, evidential, So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder What the fuck just happened?
Hi, today I am speaking with Dr. Mona Sabani, and like me, she thought none of this was possible, except she is an actual neuroscientist, so she's a bit more educated in science instead of just science-obsessed. She delved into the evidence and changed her mind. So welcome, Dr. Sabani. Would you tell us a little bit about your career as a scientist? Sure. So I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. I My dissertation was on psychopathic traits and I did human neuroimaging. So most people know that as MRI work, like the function and structure of the brain and people who have really high psychopathic traits. And then I did a little bit of work at my postdoctoral fellowship on law and neuroscience. So sort of like how the findings from neuroscience could potentially impact the legal system, especially around sentencing or how guilty people are, things like that. And then I moved into digital health. So away from doing imaging work, like even pure neuroscience work to using wearables and apps to collect data from people and help improve their you know, health and human performance. And that's where I was when my life took a turn. Yes, I have to ask you about that turn. I'm so tempted to also like, if we had five hours, I want to ask you 800 questions about like psych psychopathy, because I think that's we've all dealt with some cruel people in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> and we're yeah. all like, why? Why are they like that? But we can move on since this is about scientific evidence of an afterlife. What made you have your turn? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't one thing. It was a few things, I think, over a few years that just accumulated and caused me to shift. But one thing was that I'm Persian. And so in our culture, we have the tradition or ritual of divination, which is using tarot cards, or in my family's case, it was using coffee grinds, but not American coffee. It's like a, a Armenian, Turkish, Middle Eastern coffee that's thicker and stays in the cup. It, it forms pictures and you can you know, use it to do divination. So my grandmother used to do it and she taught my mom how to do it. And my mom d does it still and is very good at intuiting things about your life. I always ignored it. But over the years, I realized that she would know things that there's no way that she could know, like things that would just be private thoughts that I would have that I would never even say out loud. For months in advance, she would start hinting at something happening. And then it would happen. <laughs> and it would be things that like I wouldn't expect were coming or she wouldn't expect were coming, things outside of her purview. So I just ignored it because I couldn't explain it with science at all. But I knew that it was useful. So I ended up after years and years of taking notes and tracking it, I ended up taking it seriously. Like I would listen to her. And even though she was always like, it's just entertainment, don't take it seriously. <laughs> but but it worked. So you know, and then I I hit this point in my life where I was working and doing the digital health work. And I started to kind of have an existential crisis. Like, why are we here? Is this all we do? Go to work. <laughs> like, this is it forever. And then two large or like big emotional events happened in my life. My mom had seen things and details about them in the coffee. And I think that because these were two really big emotional life events. So one was the death or the murder actually of someone I knew at USC. Uh, so I went to the University of Southern California for my PhD. So one was that, and then the other was the ending of a relationship. So I think because they were really emotional and one in particular was a life or death thing, it really got my attention in a way that 
it hadn't before, but, you know, so before I took it seriously, but I never stopped to think about it or analyze it or anything. And then when, when the death happened, I was really freaked out by it. It was scared me. And I thought, oh my God, like, what is this universe? And how could she have possibly known? And this, you know, but then I was busy. I had just started the new job, so I didn't do anything. But then after the second event, which was a couple of years later, then it was kind of like the last straw, <laughs> the straw that broke the camel's back. It was like, I was barely hanging on existentially or whatever. And then that happened. And I just completely felt like I didn't understand the universe, felt like I lost like hope and I just felt despair and confusion. And uh, yeah, I just didn't know right from left or, and so it was just kind of a very, it was the dark, dark night as people say. And I wasn't trying to figure anything out at that point. I was just existing, but barely. (laughs) And then half a year in or some in that state, one of my, a group of my, I have a, a group of girlfriends from childhood that I grew up with. And one of them was like, let me take you to a psychic. We know this really good one. Let's go to be fun. And I had never been to a psychic. I didn't believe them or I thought like everyone else, they're frauds or they're reading your body language and stuff. And as a neuroscientist, I know they can pick up a lot from you, not even fraudulently or not on purpose, like unconsciously they can pick up a lot. So, so we went and the lady blew my mind. Like she knew, like even more than my mom, she knew these really intricate details, things that people had said to me, like that really caught my attention. Like there were in, at that time in my head, there were phrases, snippets of phrases or things that people had said to me that bothered me or that I was clinging to. And she like said the phrases out loud. And I was just like staring at her like, whoa, like the cards are one thing. Like it was a tarot reading, but I was like, whoa, where did she get that? And they weren't generic. They were specific things to me and my situation. It shook me. And yeah, it was like she was reading my mind. And so it was crazy. And and then also she had described some things from my past, like a trauma from childhood that I kind of never talked about with anyone. And she just like knew or named seven of the details, or like variable, I think of them as variables. So like she got like seven variables, right? And I was just staring at her like, how did you know that? <laughs> so she blew my mind. And then I, I came out of there just frazzled. And um, I was like, what just happened? And then I got curious about it. And so my friends, we decided to, we're all a little skeptical. It's like weird. It's like, everyone's like a little bit into it, but then also a little bit skeptical because you're never quite sure. So we went back, we'd go back to the same lady and get readings and then compare them. And then we'd go back to try different ones. And we did this over like a year and we kind of just swapped readings. If they're generic and vague, we should be able to swap them and they'd be true for each of us, but they weren't like they were specific to each of us. And we recorded them and we transcribed them because we started to learn. And we were like, it gets emotional. You stop taking notes. Sometimes you do misinterpret what they say. So when you go back and listen, you're like, oh, she didn't say that. So it was it was really educational and fun. It was just fun though. It was just for us. But I did walk away thinking there's definitely something going on. Like they know things that they shouldn't be able to know. And they're not guesses. There's statistically, like there's no way you could get seven variables of like this random thing from my past that is not a common thing that happens to people. But still at that point, I didn't do any research. I was just kind of like, that's weird. And then it was a podcast um, episode that I heard. So I was, and I wasn't listening to anything spiritual or reading anything spiritual at this point, but I was reading Chelsea Handler's book, A Life Will Be the Death of Me, or I was listening to it on audiobook. And then she put out a podcast, a limited series at the time, a few episodes based on the book kind of. And 
even in the book, she was still a skeptic. But then on the podcast, she had Laurel and Jackson on, who's a psychic medium. So it already had my attention because I was like, Chelsea? I thought I was like, I thought she was a skeptic. I, why does she have this lady on? But Laurel and Jackson came on and started talking about soul lessons and reincarnation. And then I was like, oh yeah, the psychics I went to mentioned that too. But since I didn't understand that at the time, I didn't have a framework for it. It kind of went over my head, but she started describing it and I thought, oh, and so I was like, oh, I can go back and look at my notes for my readings to see if that stuff makes more sense now. And then on the episode, they mentioned a book, Many Lives, Many Masters by Dr. Brian Weiss. And they were both raving about it and they they just said it was a psychiatrist case study. They didn't really say what it was. So I ordered it and it arrived and I started reading it, not knowing what it was about. <laughs> and then I was really surprised when I realized it was about past life regression. And it, that was the book that changed everything because he was, he was a Columbia and Yale educated psychiatrist. He says he was an atheist and a, did, was not into anything paranormal. And he stumbled across this through experience with a patient and in a way that it was healing to the patient. And that really caught my attention. And then he talked about the same spiritual framework saying, we come here to learn lessons, we reincarnate. And then the patient channeled spirits. So, I mean, you can just imagine, I was like, I didn't even, I was so confused about what I was reading. <laughs> so I did not know I ordered this type of book. I was like, I thought this was just a case study. <laughs> But but it resonated because he too, it's like he was coming from the same skeptical or confused place. And he talks about that in the book of like how confused he was. And so you're kind of on the journey with him and it's a short, easy read. And so that book really just changed everything for me. And he talks in the book, he's like, so I went to the library to be like, I can't be the first person to have stumbled across this. And he lists a bunch of researchers. And then that's when I was like, I was like, well, this I can do. So then I started looking at the researchers and the research and started reading about it. And I got all his books and started diving into it because I thought, this is not a spiritual person. You know, this is like a medical doctor. This is like someone with a science background, a Westerner. It was someone I could take seriously. And a lot of the people that he cited were also just normal researchers. So it got my attention. Well, first of all, just so our audience knows what Dr. Brian Weiss even writes about is not only was this past life regression, she started to get him for a little bit of information about him, stuff she could not have known, such as that he'd sadly lost, I guess, a, his infant son had passed away. And she knew that. And this was the, was it the 1980s, way before this would have been posted anywhere? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, he's, I think that's what happened. It was like, she started channeling spirits and he was like, no, but then she started, they said, oh, to prove it to you. I think they said like your dad and your, your father and your son are here and they had both passed. And then his son is so funny. I just reread re this recently. It's why I remember the details well, but the son had died at, I think nine weeks old, very young. He was just born and it was just two months after that had happened, that she was bringing it up. And the son died from a very rare heart condition where like the heart is backwards or something. And they said that they said, Oh, your son is here. And his, oh, I don't remember something exactly, but something like his heart is backwards. And then he was just like, 
nobody knew that. And he had said it since it had just happened and he was in so much pain, he had not even talked about it with his friends and family. So he was like, nobody knew except my wife and I, and then he's like this random patient. (laughs) It's like saying this in a session. So crazy. Yeah. And Laura was the first, one of the first mediums who got me on this path. And she introduced me to my mentor, Fran Ginsberg, who I talk about a lot on this podcast. Fran sadly passed in 2020 from pancreatic cancer, but so I try to bring up her memory into this podcast and my books a lot. But do you know, did you look into Fran and Bob Ginsberg at all at the Forever Family Foundation? I did a little bit. Yeah. They came up with in relation to Laurel and Jackson. Yeah. So you found this research, but at this point you read Dr. Brian Weiss and you listened to Laura. She's so normal, self-presenting. <laughs> she just sounds like such a normal person. That was one thing for me too. I was like, this isn't how I expected people like that to speak. Before starting this, you assumed everything was nonsense, like afterlife, mediumship, like a materialist atheist, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I liked to watch ghost shows for fun. (laughs) Like I love spooky stuff. uh, So I liked those for fun. But I think I was actually open to the idea. I remember talking about it with one of my scientist friends once. They're like, oh, you can't possibly believe that ghosts actually exist or something. And I was like, I mean, I don't know that they don't. I was like, I don't see scientifically how it could be. But I also don't know that it's not true. So yeah, I was sort of open, but not really. Right. Yeah. I got it. Curious, but probably not real. Then you had those experiences and I'm sure you were just like, what the fuck is this? You know, similar to my experience. And then you started to learn about the research. What was the first bit of research you started to find out about? Because of Many Lives, Many Masters, the first type of research that I started to dig into was the past life regression, which isn't really research, but I was just curious about that. So I read all his books and then I read Roger Wolger and Michael Newton. And what struck me about all of that work was that a lot of them were started off not believing, but they would come on this work. And then after working with it for a while, be like, it works, it heals patients. So it's useful. And then also that the accounts that people would give when they were in this hypnotic regressed state when that you ask them like about a spiritual framework, even though they were Westerners, a lot of those writers work was from like the 70s, 80s. They would describe this reincarnation soul lesson, whatever framework, and and they wouldn't even believe in it themselves. And so I just thought that was so weird just as a neuroscientist or, you know, I worked in mental health and stuff. I just kind of thought that was so strange. And I thought it was a genuine phenomena based on the amount of cases from each of these practitioners. And so that really had my attention. And I still think it's strange that nobody else thinks, or I mean, they do think it's strange. I'm just, I think it's wild that no one wants to look into it because it's so weird to me. (laughs) But so it started with that. And then through those works, they cited Ian Stevenson at the University of Virginia, who did the looking at reincarnation cases from young children who have past life memories. And then that was really well done. So that was mind blowing in and of itself. And then branching out into, you know, just some of the near death experience research, and then just all the stories. And I found a a lot of the psychic, sorry, that was obviously of interest to me of psychic phenomena. So I 
got a huge reading list from Mark Bocuse of the Winbridge Institute. And it was like all these scientific papers and books on research into psychic phenomena. And so the US government programs and all that. And I actually went to read a lot of those papers, the actual papers themselves, because I was interested in I read all that. And then a lot of the Winbridge, their research with mediums. So then, yeah, that was, I dove into all of that. What I always wonder, and so you're a scientist, you read all the scientific research, assuming you're talking about the government, a lot of the Stargate. We had Paul Smith, if you guys want listening, want to listen to a previous episode on the Stargate remote viewing project. We have Paul Smith on. Me as a not a trained scientist, you know, in my grief, I basically lay in bed and did nothing but read about this. And I thought this was remarkable, just the most worldview changing. So my impression of science is some new remarkable worldview changing discovery, even a hint of it comes out. Scientists want to be all over this but this is not happening. And I still have a dialogue in my head. Am I missing the catch or, well, he's since passed, but like Stephen Hawking or, you know, Brian Greene or any of the scientists that I've always really looked up to. Why are they not all over this? They completely dismiss all of this. So is it a flaw in the research? What are we not seeing? Am I not seeing something as a layperson? No, I think that for the most part, they're not aware of the research, just like I wasn't aware of it. I mean, when I started going to the psychics, the reason I did that instead of trying to find research is because I didn't think any research had been done on it. And it wasn't until Mark, because he told me, he's like, this has been studied for over a hundred years in a lot of really good labs. There's a lot of really good protocols. Until he told me that, I didn't know. And he also told me, which was true, it turned out that when you go onto, you know, like we have these databases we go to to find scientific papers like Google Scholar or PubMed, when you go to those and you try to find papers on psychical research, they're not indexed the same way that other papers are. So they don't come up. So there's also that. So like sometimes when I would try to, I would have the name of a paper, normally if it's like a normal neuroscience thing, I would just put in like three keywords and the paper I want comes up. But when I was trying to find the papers on his list, sometimes I would have to put the exact title in direct quotation marks for it to come up. So Google doesn't index those papers the same way they index others, which is weird. I don't know who decided that. I think it's a few things. I mean, I think culturally, mainstream culture is what we call scientific materialists, which is believing that the universe is made of physical matter and that that's all there is. And because of that's the narrative. And so anytime, usually when things are written about that fall outside that paradigm, it's always kind of like, oh, allegedly, or, you know, <laughs> there's no re- there's no research or data behind this, but, you know, here's a story. And part of it is just ignorance. Like they don't know that there's been all this research done. And then part of it is dedication to a scientific materialist worldview, which does not allow for these experiences because we can't explain them. So you end up having to ignore them. So that's what it is. I mean, and everything's debatable in science. Nothing's ever proven. I mean, I was convinced that there's enough evidence to put the scientific materialist paradigm into question. That's what ended up happening for me. Like, do I know the answer to everything now? No, like no one's ever going to know. But I know enough to say that that model does not account for every kind of human experience. So it's not a very good model. But most people, most scientists are not willing 
to do that because they're not familiar with the research. And also, I mean, a lot of people talk about this too in this field is when your ego identity and salary depend on one particular worldview being right, why on earth would you ever consider a different one? One thing that confuses me, I haven't spoken that much to actual scientists because I don't really have access, but or skeptics I've spoken with, they seem very angry at this. They just say, you're so stupid for even exploring this. You deserve to be mocked. And, you know, I'll come back. For example, Carl Sagan said that the research of Dr. Ian Stevenson and the Gonsfeld, which is a testing psychic abilities of mind reading, both were worthy of further investigation. I tell them that and they just, you know, no curiosity at all. They refuse to read it and they say they'll never read it, but very angry as if they don't want it to be true. What is the anger and what is the behind it? Instead of just saying, "Eh, I don't believe this and moving on. It's a good question because that's how I used to react. So the, it's the same problem that we have in the rest of society, it's not specific to scientists. It's the way that everyone reacts to everything when any of their ideas or identities are threatened because we don't are not trained to recognize our emotions or to work through our traumas or to have an appropriate relationship with our identities. So when we talk about this in this field, yeah, we could, and you know, I did that in my book. I was like, scientists need to lighten the F up. But the, the truth is that it's not, specific to them. It's specific to everyone or not specific. It's generalized to everyone. Yeah. The reason is because when you like Gabor Mate is a family, I think he's a family medicine doctor, but he's a trauma specialist. And he talks about this a lot. Like if somebody says something to you and you about you and you 100% know that it's not true, it doesn't bother you. You're not bothered. You don't get angry. So it triggers something in them. And what it triggers in them is some like unresolved childhood wound. And that's how I've started to look at it. And when I was started on this journey, I was more concerned about what those people thought of me because I basically was that person still. I was transitioning out of it, but I was still that person really. And then over time, as I started to change, because I started doing a lot of healing work, I started to realize, well, the anger just started to go away because I started to address those core issues and I write about in the book, to me, it was my self-worth came from my identity as a scientist and being smart. And so for me, it was like, if somebody was su- suggesting something spiritual, our society and like the general belief is that that's stupid. And so if someone's telling me that I would take it as, oh, you must think I'm stupid. And that's like a core wound for me. So then I would react with anger. But once I addressed that, when people started doing that, I was like, all right, whatever. Like I just literally didn't care. <laughs> and now when I look at people who react in an angry way, not to say I never get angry, I'm sure I still do it too, you know, because it's something you just have to keep addressing. But now when I look at them, I just understand it's like you're dealing with a child who's throwing a tantrum and you don't get angry at kids. Like you feel sorry for them, right? It's like, oh, you know, you don't have the language to tell me why you're upset. You don't have the emotional regulation skills to take care of yourself. So that's how you look at them. I mean, because that's what it is. They can't regulate their emotions and they can't put into words why they're really upset because they don't even know why they're really upset because they can't access it. So it's like, all you can do is look at them and be like, okay, well, I have compassion for you and where you are because but you can't help them. They have to help themselves. I don't know. That's how I see it. And I think that, yeah, there's no way around that. I mean, it's a societal problem. But it doesn't seem like it says that anything negative about the actual research being done. The research is valid still. 
Yeah, the research is valid. I mean, here's well, here's two things. One, for a normally trained scientist like me, if you read it, you can't dismiss it offhand. But I will also say that any research, every research, even the best controlled research can be critiqued and criticized because no experiment is perfect. So even in our normal work, when we publish stuff, they get ripped apart by other scientists. You know, it's peer review. So they'll always come back with things that we didn't think of and didn't see. So no experiment is perfect. And that's why you need like hundreds of thousands of experiments on one topic to ever come to a conclusion, which we never do anyway. There's no conclusion. Like we just keep learning. So the science is as valid as others. I mean, to some degree, some of the topics like consciousness, they are hard to study. They're not easy to study. They are difficult to come up with clever experiments to capture it. And that's part of the problem. That's also why some scientists don't even like to go near it because it's so hard to think about creative experiments and how to do it properly. And people can't agree oftentimes on what variables should be controlled. It's a little more complicated than just that. But yeah, I mean, I think, and a lot of other PhDs and Nobel Prize laureates and stuff have looked at the research and think it's just as good as any other research. Considering the fact that there hasn't been that much funding put into it is is pretty, speaks a lot to it, I think. Now, one thing you wrote about that you did in your book, which must have been amazing, is you took all this time, you had access to a lot of scientists, and you had conversations with them about what they think about this. And I understand you can't give names because they like to keep that private, you know, for all the reasons we were saying and how it could hurt their careers and be mocked, but that what they say publicly about afterlife and sigh is very different than what they say behind closed doors. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say that earlier when you were asking, I was going to say, it's also that there's a public persona and a behind the like a cocktail hour persona for scientists. And I think for a lot of people, I had private conversations with a lot of my colleagues and, you know, all of them had stories, personal stories. A lot of them were, you know, like me and liked a good ghost story. They all had people in their lives who were highly intuitive or whatnot. And they were all open, which was also, I was like, oh, it's a good thing. We're all, we're all actually good, well-trained scientists because we actually all do believe that one data point even if it's an outlier is important. And like, if something happens once it's important and that we don't know all the answers to everything, we all readily admitted that, but I could tell that some of them, and I know for a fact, some of them would not talk about those things in public. And they were very careful about what they share at the university with other people. And for good reason. I mean, there's a lot of stigma and oh man, oh, I was just talking about this with a grad, someone who wants to go into grad school and I was telling them, I'm like, one thing you should be prepared for is that it's what we just talked about. Academics in particular are not emotionally mature people. They, like the rest of society, they are not emotionally mature. They're not emotionally regulated. They're very immature. It's like a toxic environment that brings out the worst character traits of people in some ways. Yeah. They can't really deal with, they don't deal well with outside the box ideas, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They're not above being condescending to you in a staff meeting or it's it, or if you're presenting something like they'll, they'll make snide remarks. It's not a very friendly profession. <laughs> we just came across this because we were organizing an event and we were like, okay, what are the assumptions? And I was like, you know what? Every time 
We have a science event. The culture is that you can say anything you want in any tone. And commonly it's aggressive and condescending. And so like for our event, we were like, that's not allowed here. That, so that's just how it is. And, and that's unfortunate. I mean, the whole culture should change. From me on the outside, until I started studying this, I held scientists and academics to this ideal. They're just human. Yeah. And that's what I'm starting to realize. They just seemed like they would explore any idea with honesty and truth and not lie to themselves and be curious about data. And it turns out that doesn't seem to be the case. No. I mean, they also don't have time to do that, to also be fair to them. They don't have time to go read. They barely have time to do their own jobs and to read everything in their own field. So it's like they really don't have time to explore. And it takes a lot of mental energy to step outside of your field. It's hard, you know? So to be fair to them, I mean, it is it is hard. <laughs> but yeah, you wish they would be more open. But they're like so tired and like, all they do is think all day. It's it's like to ask them to think about something else and read all these hundred other papers. Like there's no way that's going to happen. And I mean, I don't want anyone to think now I've gone so far with this, I'm knocking science. I mean, it was scientists that saved us in a pandemic that got us back. I mean, I have utmost admiration for science. I just say this because I think the level I used to idealize them in my grief and still, even though it's, I mean, grief never goes away, but it's evolved where I can be more clear headed. I still, when I hear scientists say, oh, there can't be an afterlife or knock this. A part of me is like, I'm just not smart enough to see the catch in this research and there must be no afterlife and I'll get like a grief trigger. Even before I had this transformation, I was agnostic and not an atheist because I knew that we could not prove or disprove, at least as far as I knew, unless someone comes up with some really creative experiment or things change. Nobody on earth can answer that question <laughs> for definitively. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would say about that, that people who do, they're wrong. They they don't have the answer and they can't know. So you, you can dismiss them back. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30 something year old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. One thing I read in your book that I hadn't really known is you said just exactly how specialized scientists are. And I mean, yes, I knew they were specialties. You use an example of a neuroscientist that studied one part of a brain and not another. Would, would You can explain this better than I can. Yeah, yeah. In neuroscience alone, we have four different branches, or we probably have more, but we had four tracks in our grad school. One was like molecular and cellular, one was systems. One was cognitive neuroscience and one was computational. And each of them is very different, right? So cognitive, I do human subjects. People come in, I scan their brain, cellular, molecular is literally like neurons on a 
plate, you know, systems were animal, it's animal research. And then computational is like, they just work with, they code and they make, you know, computer models or net uh, models of the brain and how it works. So each of those are very specialized. And yeah, it was one of my, one of my really good friends is a systems neuroscientist. And I remember I was casually talking to him about the brain. And I mentioned some part of the brain, like the amygdala. And he's like, what's that? And I was like, excuse me. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) And he's like, no, I don't. Well, I don't work. He's like, well, I don't work with human brains. And I was like, but still, (laughs) you don't know the neuroanatomy. And he's like, well, no, I never had to learn it. And I was like, okay. So yeah. it. So we've had a lot of moments like that with colleagues where I'm like, wow, we are really, really specialized in what we do. So that's another thing. It's hard sometimes to read other science papers and to be able to discern if it's a good experiment or not, if it's not your field. That makes sense why neuroscientists might not really know well the work of, say, Dr. Bruce Grayson or Sam Parnia, who study near-death experiences. Now, here I think this is a misconception I had, and I assume other people did. I assumed when neuroscientists, scientists knew consciousness was created by a brain, without a doubt, that they understood how, but do they have an answer to how consciousness works to back up their materialist theory? No, no, no. That's the biggest mystery in neuroscience. And I guess like one of the biggest questions, I guess I saw some things, some article. It was like, I think the biggest question is what's the origin of life. But the second is what is consciousness? (laughs) So yeah, no, we have no idea. So their materialist concept. It's a hypothesis as much as survival can be called a hypothesis. Oh yeah, definitely. They're all hypotheses. I think it's always a hypothesis. Yeah. The hypothesis is that consciousness is produced or generated by the brain so that the idea is enough pieces of the brain come together and somehow work together. And then we get consciousness. But the hard problem is this subjective experience of what is it like to be me? Only I know that. And only you know what it's like to be you and nobody else can access that. It's called subjective experience. And we don't know how that's generated from physical neurons. So it's called the hard problem because it's trying to bridge the gap between physical and subjective. And this is like a millennia long debate. Literally for thousands of years, humans have been debating, is the universe physical or is it mental? Or is it physical and mental? So, And when you get into philosophy, it's like dualism, monism, panpsychism, all these different philosophies. And materialism is one of them. And materialism is just the one that science is under the umbrella of. But a lot of scientists don't even know that there's other worldviews. They don't know there's other philosophies. They don't, and they don't know that they're under this invisible umbrella. Which is what, which was the case for me. I didn't know that. Well, I don't know how much you can speak to this or how much has to be kept secret, but was there anyone you spoke to speaking with scientists and doing your project or government officials? I know you got to speak to some pretty amazing people who you weren't, understandably weren't allowed to say who. Was there anyone (laughs) that you were just like a little nervous to speak with? They were like, I admire this person so much. And you were shocked by their view on afterlife or spirituality or non-local conscious, like you just would have never believed that they thought this could be real or experience they shared. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them shocked me with their (laughs) stories, the things they shared. Mostly I just learned a lot from them. I think I just learned how to be open to mystery and open to experiences. I mean, some of them really 
taught me a lot of just amazing ideas. Like one of them, I did, I'll never forget this. He said, the one thing you should always resist doing is labeling things and using language, resist concepts, resist boxes, resist labels and boundaries and borders. And he's like, when you're talking about something like this, so he's like, if someone tells you a story and I do this all the time now, and he's like, if someone tells you a story that they saw an angel, he's like, remember that that's the word that they're using, but in your mind, discard the label and just listen to the experience. And so, yeah, mostly I just learned from them a lot about being open and curious, but yeah, I was amazed. I was amazed at how many of them had stories. So you first went from thinking, basically you called yourself agnostic, but pretty much dismissed all of this to then think it was possible. Was there a turning point in the middle where you just went from, this is possible. I'm kind of amazed to, oh my God, next level. And if so, what was that turning point? Yeah, I have a friend who is extremely intuitive and psychic or medium or whatever you want to call it. But I I didn't actually know. I mean, now, now we're better friends. Now we talk all the time. But at the time, I didn't know that he was that connected is what I call it. And what had happened? Well, I've had a million experiences with him that have blown my mind at this point. Every day, actually. Every day he... <laughs> Every single day, he blows my mind, but it's not as shocking anymore. So my mentor passed away too. The men- I had a mentor who encouraged me to write the book, and then he passed away in 2021 from COVID. And then it was in November, and then in December, my friend came over. I invited him and his husband over for dinner, and it was the first time they were coming over for dinner. And I don't think I had even mentioned to him that my mentor had passed. He didn't know him either. Like I maybe once mentioned it. It wasn't like something we talked about a lot. But anyway, he came, they came over for dinner and he came in and he was like, whoa, there's a male spirit here. And I was like staring at him, like, don't freak me out. I don't want to know if there's any ghosts in here. I'm not, I don't care. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. And he's like, no, no, no. It's positive. It's not like a spooky thing. He's like, I think he knows you. And he asked, does someone pass away recently? And so I was just staring at him like, what is happening? I was like, well, my mentor Jeff passed away. And then suddenly he just started saying a lot of things at once. He wasn't channeling per se, but he was just getting a dump. And so he just started saying a bunch of stuff. So what happened was that I didn't find out that that my mentor had passed away for a week. It, it was really weird. I mean, and I was really upset about it. I was like, how how did no one call me or like, hello, text me or something. Like I ended up getting like a an email from this board that we were on together. Uh, and that's how I found out. And it was horrible. My friend, he said that I barely had a chance to say anything. And he was like, you didn't find out for a while. And you're upset about that. And he's like, wait, hold on. He said there was a reason for that. And he, and he said, it has something to do with your book. What was going on with your book that week? And I was like in shock. And I, I was like, I don't know. And I pulled up my calendar to look. And I was like, oh, my editor had sent me the book to edit and I had a week to edit these certain chapters. And then I realized I was like, oh my God, the day that I sent in the edits later that afternoon, I got the email. And so he, about the news. And so he said that was on purpose so that you wouldn't be distracted and in grief. 
when you had to edit the book. And it was crazy because there's no way he could. I mean, I forgot that I was editing it. It was just the craziest things just kept pouring out of his mouth. Things about my relationship with Jeff that he wouldn't have known in like messages. And I was like, <laughs> I was floored. And I was like crying and I was like, what is happening? But it was really transformational, obviously, because it was just so undeniable. It was like such an, a massive amount of information that he couldn't have known. It was weird too. Like he did some mannerisms that were Jeff's and he had never met him. He didn't even know what he looked like. And he also drew a picture of him. And in the picture, he was wearing sunglasses. And then it was interesting because the picture I posted on Instagram about his death was a picture of me and him and he's wearing sunglasses. And so he was saying, oh, she'll recognize this. Okay. It was just crazy. It was things like that. And I was, after that, I was like, I don't even know. It really is hard to, to believe sometimes. So I'm sure I went back and forth, but that was really one point where I was like, I don't know. This is a lot. I had a lot of those. I mean, I still have them where I'm like, this can't be, but how, but how? And I've had millions of those with him since. So now it's like, I can't, it's indisputable, but. Right. There, it's a turning point of odds against chance. Maybe you could have one beyond crazy coincidence one time, but there comes a limit to how many times a coincidence can statistically be possible to keep happening. Yeah, there's no way. Yeah, the odds of that are (laughs) astronomical. So I would say he's been really instrumental. I've noticed this with a lot of people researching this, including myself, people like me, I'm assuming you who think we have no abilities, who suddenly, once we start studying this, having our own weird experiences. Like, have you had any of your own crazy personal experiences? Oh, yeah. I mean, actually, I don't tell this in the book, but actually before I even heard Chelsea's podcast, when we were going to see intuitives. Well, actually, when I was younger, I used to have precognitive dreams. And so did my brother. And so does my mom. But then I started ignoring them after, I think, grad school, I guess. But at that time, they started coming back. And there was one that was really powerful that kind of tipped me off to something about that relationship that ended. It was very clear. And then after that, they kept happening more frequently. They still happen all the time. (laughs) So that came back with a flood. Like it was just a flood that came back. And yeah, I've had a lot of other knowing experiences, like things that I just know that started happening. Do those dreams feel different than normal dreams? No, I mean, off and on, I keep a dream journal because I started realizing that I couldn't tell what was going to be. So I just started writing everything down. Yeah, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at just deciphering which dreams are going to come true or not. But maybe one day, I don't know if anyone can do that. (laughs) Can they? Some people have said that certain dreams that have come true, they feel different. Some will say that with precognitive or dream visitations. They're very clear and they remember every detail. And I've noticed myself, although I can't say 100% of the time I've had this on occasion with regular dreams, but I've had a few weird things happen with dreams that end up verified and possible dream visitations. And they are so clear. And I remember them so well. And I don't normally remember my dreams most of the time when I start writing them down and writing down any little bits that I can remember, I start remembering all my dreams vividly. And I really want to stick with that. But yeah, even when I'm not remembering most of my dreams, these certain dreams will be so specific, so clear and very 
realistic. They don't have the weird kind of dreamy misty, but and then people who have real abilities say this even next level. Sometimes, yeah. Some of the dreams that were I would say this, like when they're really emotional or the event ends up being emotional, not the dream. The event, then when I look back, but then I don't know if it's like me looking back and thinking it was more significant. So I don't know. But yeah, it's kind of hard to tell for me, which which will be precognitive. Have you done psychedelics? And if so, what was your experience? Yeah. Yeah. They've been a big part of this journey because somebody had mentioned to me when I was doing the interviews, they're like, have you looked into psychedelics? A lot of weird stuff happens on psychedelics. So I went to read about them. And then I was blown away by not only the fact that weird, what we call them emergent experiences happen on them, like telepathy or knowing someone has died, someone who's far away that you wouldn't expect. But also that just from a neuroscience perspective, that they're very healing for mental health issues. And that's all the new research for me. I did. Yeah. I wrote about in the book, one experience, but I've had many others and basically they've helped me understand the breadth of human experience. And then I usually describe it as like, it's like stepping out of 2d into 3d and then coming back. And you, it's like, you didn't know how deeply you could feel or experience being a human until you step into that space. And then you come back and you're just like, your whole life has changed. And that's not to say that everyone should do it. And not to say that every experience is beautiful because it's definitely not, not, and you never know what you're going to get, but that was just my experience. And yeah, they've been very useful for me, but you can have similar experiences with breath work, which are safe, which is safer for some people. Now, if you were given limitless time, money, what would be a dream experiment of yours to run? I'm really interested in intuitives, like my friend's ability to see and perceive. Yeah, I would do a lot more research. I don't like doing research anymore, but (laughs) if I had money to pay someone else to do it, (laughs) I would want them to measure, do neural measurements, skin measurements, temperature. I would do the environment, like measure things in the environment, and then also biochemically. So looking at things like if we can in some way endogenous, like DMT or things like that to start to map what are the differences? Because I I do think that, I think there's been a little bit of work done on that, but I think there could be a lot more. Uh, like there would needs to be so much more money and so much more research done in that. It hasn't even started really so yeah, I would be interested in personally in that. Like I'm interested to know what biologically, physiologically, neurologically is different in people like that, how it changes for them, if it changes or yeah, things like that. Are you familiar with Dr. Jeffrey Tarrant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like that, like EEG, but even more, I guess I'm really interested in, in like the commonalities between what they see and with psychedelic states or with altered states. Yeah. So stuff like that. I mean, I just want people to go do these experiments and I want to sit and watch them and just be mind blown. Is there a study you read or learned about that what you think was most impactful or do you have your favorite study that you read? I don't know. A lot of the work coming out of IONS is good. The Institute for Noetic Science. Are you familiar with them? Yeah. Yeah. I know them well. I love them. Yeah. And I work with them a little bit and I love their work. I'm really interested in this work was started by Dr. Tiller, but IONS, I think has done at least one replication, but Dr. Tiller was this materials scientist from Stanford who was very interested in intention. So he created this device to capture 
like you could condition the device with intention. They would have experienced meditators do that. And then you could put the device into a room or a space and it would, well, they were testing whether it would (laughs) diffuse the intention into the room, but he tied it to physical measurements like temperature and pH of water in the room. So he did all those kind of really interesting experiments like that tying. So like intention, which is something mental and subjective to the physical environment. And yeah, IONS did a replication study of that, but that kind of work is what I'm interested in. Oh, I want you to do that. If I become a billionaire, I'm going to invest in a research labs for this. That's all I would do. Yeah. Yeah. We need a whole, we need a lot of money into it. Yes. I would do other things too, like help starving people, probably not use my money to go into space or anything. Just saying. Oh my gosh. I agree. I mean, I would probably take a ride into space on like Virgin Galactic, but yeah, I think I'd find kinder uses of my money. Yeah. I I could think of a few other things that require funds than space travel. So what are the limits of the scientific method in studying this research? And I guess what are the strengths too? The strengths are, you know, that we can break things down into variables and study each specific thing and start to get at mechanisms, which is what science does. The problem (laughs) is that you assume things can be broken down into parts and that when you break them down into parts, you don't lose something greater than the parts. And science does assume that, but there's other branches of systems science and like systems theory that says when you put a bunch of parts together, they produce something actually greater than the sum of the parts. And so if that assumption is not true, which we always assume it's true in science, but it may not be true, then your experiments don't work that well. And I think also if things like intention do affect, if if the mental really does affect the physical of mind affects matter, we don't control for that in science right now because we assume that's not true. So if it is true and we don't control for it, then it's a huge problem <laughs> in all of our experiments because it's an uncontrolled variable. And science is useful method. But what people don't understand is that there's a lot of assumptions that go into every experiment. And if you're not careful with your assumptions, I mean, that greatly affects how you do science and it affects your outcomes. So that's why it's important to think very carefully about the viewpoint you're coming from and the assumptions you're making. I know you're not going to have the accurate answer for this. So this is speculative. What mechanism? How could an afterlife or psi abilities, psychic abilities, psychokinesis, which is mind's ability to affect matter, all of this. How could this work scientifically? Well, no one knows. So basically it depends. It goes back to what we talked about earlier about what philosophy or worldview you have. Because if you are coming from a physicalist, scientific materialist worldview, then you want to know the mechanism of how. So what I was talking about earlier, like, let's say your mind can influence matter, then you want to know how. And so like the Stargate programs started to try to address that by doing experiments in shielded rooms and uh, electromagnetically shielded rooms using Faraday cages. So when you do that, you can rule out electromagnetic information and then you narrow it down from there. So if it's a, you're in a physicalist paradigm, you're looking for a physical signal or something between the two. 
But if you're coming from a different worldview, such as panpsychism, where everything has consciousness, everything like, or consciousness is a fundamental aspect of reality. Maybe consciousness is information or it's an energy, but it's as fundamental as matter. Then you're in a completely different worldview where it's not weird that that consciousness can go between or whatever. Like it's a fundamental aspect of reality. So it makes sense. If you're an idealist, if you believe in idealism, then there is no physical matter. Then the whole world is mental. And basically it's not impossible. Anything's possible because everything's mental. And so you wouldn't be looking for a physical explanation of anything. You'd just be like, oh, the mental, you know, the mental changed, whatever. And so, and so any of the theories where consciousness is broader or whatever you want to call it, we don't even know. Let's say consciousness is broader. And like, let's say it's a background energy field that when it interacts with a biological brain brings awareness to the human being, but exists on its own without the human, then it makes perfect sense. Just like the cloud software cloud. Now we understand because of cloud computing, that you don't have to have the software on your computer. You can pop onto a browser and use Microsoft Word now. And it's the same, it could be the same thing for for consciousness. So it's a complicated answer, but basically there's a lot of different ways that it could be true. And we don't, we haven't decided. It depends on what worldview and philosophy you adopt. Do you think any of the mainstream science is close in any way? Like I am always go to string theory and quantum entanglement. Do you think those are close to answering it? And just so people listening, quantum entanglements, I know we've mentioned this on this podcast before. It's when two particles, it's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. It's, you know, you take two particles and they communicate faster than the speed of light. At the same time, simultaneously. You spin one spinning left and the other spins right and you separate them like even light years away. They communicate by a mechanism we cannot understand at a speed that we think of as impossible based on our model of science. So do you think either of those, that theory or string theory have some key to this? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that much about string theory, but <laughs> I mean, it, whether, yeah, there's other dimensions or something totally, but yeah, quantum, I mean, like there's a lot of theories there's in the last few years been a lot of scientific publications of alternative theories of consciousness. And some of them include stuff like that, like Hameroff and Penrose have proposed a theory of the quantum brain. So they're saying like, oh, there's a part of the brain that interacts with the quantum field. And that's how you get these weird, these experiences that we call weird (laughs) or impossible. So that's one possibility. That's a physical, you have a physicalist assumption, but also a quantum. So that's one way. There's basically, there's a permutation in a lot of different ways that it could be possible. There's more ways that it could be possible than it than it's not. So there's a lot of different, no one knows. And there's a lot of theories being proposed now. I was surprised at how many really popular neuroscience and psychology journals, a lot of different models are being published. Maybe consciousness is, a, is resonance. Maybe um, it's a spectrum of resonance. Maybe it's a background field that we interact with. No one knows. What do you mean by resonance? I'm not that familiar with this theory, so don't ask me details. But I know somebody has, I think it's Jonathan Schooler's UCSB. I think it's something about resonance that instead of a structure in the brain producing consciousness, because the brain does, it has electrical activity and it has different frequencies. And different parts of the brain can operate at different frequencies 
but then they coordinate with each other. So it is like a big network of coordination. And so I think he talks about when at a certain resonance or when certain parts are in resonance, that's when consciousness emerges. So then it's not how much information the system has, or it's not, like I said, a certain part of the brain that it's actually about the coherence of a system. That's kind of a revolutionary theory. A lot of these theories are really probably sound crazy to the public, but to scientists too, they're like, whoa, like what a, what a maverick he is for proposing something like that. Do you think science and widely accepted quote unquote mainstream science is ever going to have an answer about survival of consciousness and how the mechanism works? I think if there was any interest and funding put into it, that we could definitely come closer to an answer. I I was talking about this actually with a group of neuroscientists and I was like, to some extent, I feel like we just cannot understand. That's what I believe is that we just are not capable of understanding because our brains are pretty limited. But like, even if, even if consciousness is in the cloud, even if you download it, you're still limited by your human brain language concepts. Like, I just feel like we can't. But I think that there just really hasn't been much of an effort or funding put into it. So I definitely think you could get closer to an answer than we are now. How has your life changed since all these discoveries, learning about the research? Well, it's changed for the better. It's definitely more interesting. (laughs) It's definitely more fun. Yeah, I think I have immediately started having more meaning in life. And I think that's what kept me open to exploring was I adopted that worldview just like to take it for a test run. I was like, okay, well, what if we reincarnate? And what if I'm here to learn a lesson? So what if I look at every challenge as an opportunity or I ask myself, what am I supposed to be learning here? I started doing that. And then my life experience like significantly improved. And I was like, oh, oh no, spirituality is useful. I was like, oh, spirituality is actually valuable and useful. And I was like, oh, this is why people like spirituality. I mean, and that's carried through not to say I haven't had moments of frustration and lack of faith and confusion, but it's definitely improved for the better. And it's more interesting. And I definitely feel like I understand things to some extent at a deeper level. How convinced are you this is all real? Is it like, are you now like 50-50? Are you like 90 No, I'm pretty convinced because I think when I started and I think what people tend to do, like skeptics, what you tend to do is think of these are all anecdotes and all these people could be mistaken. But when you really get into the literature and you get into the stories, you find that a lot, just a significant amount are verifiable. Like the details people provide, they're verifiable between two or more or three people. You find similarities across not only people, but cultures and time. I think that there's, I think there's too much. So like the original viewpoint that I came at, that skeptics come at, that is definitely wrong. (laughs) So, I mean, I know for a fact that reality is really way more weird than the scientific materialists think it is, what the truth is or whatever. Like nobody knows that, but I just know it's weirder than that. And, and that viewpoint has to ignore subjective experience. So, you know, I, I just think you have to ignore half of the human experience to make that model work. 
And that just doesn't work. That's just not right. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, convinced reality is way weirder than we understand whether it's spiritual, that stuff, I try to stay open like that. Like I said, I tried to learn from those people that I spoke to where I actually try to think of it in an abstract way or a formless way. And only when it's useful being like, oh, this is a soul lesson, only if it's useful. Otherwise I'm like, the universe is probably really weird. I mean, it's just incomprehensible to us. And that's enough. (laughs) That's just enough. Consciousness is so weird. And being human or being a dog, any animal is so weird. About that question. I think that, I think so. I used to be obsessed when I started this with actually the questions you asked with what is the mechanism? Because I was a physicalist. So first I was like, what's, what's the mechanism? Then once I realized that you could have these different viewpoints, like the different philosophies or worldviews. And I was like, oh, that question doesn't make any sense in a different worldview. There may not be no mechanism because <laughs> there's no physical. So, so that shifted that. And then once I got past that too, then I realized that I was like, you know, Actually, when you step way back, me or us trying to understand it or label it or anything is still in the Western scientific materialist paradigm to some extent, because you're still trying to reduce your experience and understand it. And so once I got behind that, then I was like, actually, it doesn't matter. All that matters is my experience. And so if something like that happens to me, the most important question is, what does this mean to me? That's it. That's the only important thing. What does this mean to me? Are there any other questions I haven't asked you that you'd like me to or anything else you want to say? I think that it's really hard to change your worldview. And I think a lot of people are going to be having that happen to them soon with the psychedelic renaissance and other things. More people than ever are have picked up contemplative practice. So more people than ever have had mystical experiences. So that's about to be amplified with the psychedelic renaissance. So I think that all of us should be thinking about spiritual integration or like how to integrate. It doesn't even have to be spiritual, but just integrating these experiences into our lives and being compassionate to people who are trying to do that is going to be super important. So uh, I don't have answers for how, but actually the as I think Carl Jung said, the best thing I can do for you is work on myself. And the best thing you can do for you is whatever, you know what I mean? (laughs) What is the best thing I can do for you is work on myself. The best thing you can do for me is work on yourself. And I think that's true. I think that going back to what we talked about earlier about why are scientists angry or why is this a societal thing? It's because no one has worked on themselves or like very few people have because there's no incentive to. So I think that if people do work on themselves, they'll open their hearts to have more compassion and understanding for other people. So I think we need that. Hi, I'm interrupting the podcast episode for this week's listener question. So Mia asks, why don't evil people, dictators, child abusers all have NDEs? If there are loved ones on the other side who want the best for us, why don't they make that happen so evil people grow and stop causing so much harm? Okay, so I get what you're asking. Now, for people not familiar with NDEs, those are near-death experiences where someone is clinically dead and then they're resuscitated and come back 
reporting experiences such as seeing loved ones on the other side. They are really fascinating and good evidence of survival of consciousness in an afterlife. Dr. Bruce Grayson and Dr. Sam Parnia are some researchers to check out on this topic. You can also listen to my episode with researcher Dr. Jan Holden and an episode I had where I spoke to an NDE experiencer, Jacob Cooper. Overall, during NDEs, these people report coming back transformed, very loving, much more emotionally involved. There was, I forgot the exact story, but there was someone who always wanted to fight people and was like a very angry guy. And he came back just wanting to only help and caring about people. And when people come back, they care a lot less about things like money and power and really more just about love and helping people. So in theory, a dictator with a lot of power, like say Putin, who had an NDE, could come back and transform the world. Or an abuser who hurt their family while they couldn't transform the world to the level Putin could, they certainly could transform the world for their family and loved ones. Or then you take even a meh person with tons of power, like Jeff Bezos. He could come back and transform workers' rights and environmental aspects of shipping and packaging. But, you know, none of those people have had NDEs as far as I know. So the only true honest answer I can have is I don't know. I've always thought the same thing and that it would be really great if this did happen. I can give some theories. I know that mediums would say that there is a purpose to life and maybe that would interfere with this person's growth and who they are supposed to be in this life and all the people's lessons they're supposed to learn who encounter these people. Others might say that earth is supposed to be a challenge and that would take away a lot of the challenges that people are supposed to face who encounter and have to deal with these difficult people. I mean, maybe. I, I can't really have an opinion on that. Um, in terms of research, people have no idea why some people who are declared clinically dead and get resuscitated have NDEs and then others don't. I can't begin to touch upon that at all. So you take it to this question, I, I can't answer it either. I mean, in terms of terrible people having NDEs and why some people do and some don't, maybe some things in this world really are just completely random. Maybe, maybe not. There are just so many ways to look at this from the purely random all the way to that there is some grand plan and role we are all supposed to play for our highest growth to many possibilities or theories in between those two. Yeah, I really wish these people would all have NDEs too. I mean, actually, it would probably be amazing if everyone had one. But then, you know, if there is a plan to all of this, if we were supposed to know and be that and I'm using air quotes here, enlightened, we would all be able to remember and know the other side and the NDE lessons without having to have that bodily trauma of an NDE where we almost died or were injured. 
So anyway, I wonder the same thing. I really have no valid answer beyond just theorizing, but really good question. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, can I ask all of you listening a favor that would be so helpful? Would you mind rating and reviewing this podcast on whatever app you're listening? Even just clicking the star button to rate would be so helpful. With lesser known podcasts, ratings make a huge difference in the algorithm and whether new listeners can even find this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Where can our listeners find you, follow you, say the name of your book again? Oh, yes. Oh, I think I have it here. This is my book. It's <laughs> Proof of Spiritual Phenomena. My website is monasobaniphd.com, and you can find links to the book there, but it's also sold wherever books are sold. I have been writing a substack called The Brave New World of Psychedelic Science, but I'm switching in January to a new one, but it's all on my website. You can sign up for the new one. The new one is called, it's so new. I, I have to, I think the name is Cosmos Science and Coffee. <laughs> I have to double check, but it's on my website. Thank you so much, Dr. Sabani. This was a really eye-opening, amazing conversation. I really appreciate your time. No, thank you so much for having me. I almost cried a few times, so <laughs> it, it was a good one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's like, it happens. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There, you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore, or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.